SEOs are good at the technical, but I need to go in-house somewhere or to an agency that is the best at storytelling. Welcome back. Another episode of Leading Matters. And this one is fascinating. My guest is Lexi Mills. As always, you're going to hear more of an introduction about who Lexi is in just a moment. But think about the communication landscape as it exists today and whether or not you are deeply invested in what's happening with things like search engine optimization or whatnot, because it's almost inconsequential. What is consequential is how we are communicating the impact that that communication has onto our businesses, onto ourselves as we develop our careers, as we develop our strengths, as we address maybe some weaknesses. And think about the changes that have happened over the last 10 years. It's February of 2017, 10 years ago, Twitter was just starting. Facebook was only open to the public for about a year. So the landscape's changed radically. Now, fast forward, 2027, what do you think that's going to look like? Probably a heck of a lot different than it looks like right now. So what does that mean to how you're running your business today and where you want to drive it into the future? That is what this conversation is all about. And you're going to get some great motivation, insight, and perspective, and indeed, immediate actions that you could take on what you're doing for yourself, for your company, and where you're leading it today and tomorrow. So sit back, buckle up, keep your eyes on the road, and enjoy this conversation with Lexi Mills. My guest today is an absolute expert in integrating PR and search engine optimization at both the strategic and the tactical levels. Now, now just think about that just for a moment, integrating PR. Now, you're going to read that statement on just about every PR firm that exists across the globe, but what makes our guest unique is she really, truly, and sincerely knows how to do it and does it extraordinarily well. And she cares so much about her craft that she recently has been researching the ethics and risks of artificial intelligence as well as the potential impact to healthcare. Now, how does she do all this? Well, by combining her technical expertise with psychology to create better and more influential communication strategies. Now, I had the pleasure of seeing her speak late last summer. And I have to say, and I'm not even exaggerating here, it was without a doubt the most brilliant coverage of PR in our content and digital age that I'd ever seen. And that day, I decided my goal was going to be to have her on the show, and I'm so thrilled that she's here today. So who is she? She is Lexi Mills, the Managing Director at Marquee Communications and Consulting. Lexi, I'm so excited to have you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thanks for joining me today on Leading Matters. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, great. So listen, Lexi, I know a little bit about you, obviously. I've seen you speak. I follow your work a little bit. But for the benefit of the audience, why don't you just kind of get us started by giving us a little bit more color commentary on on who you are, what you do, and how you go about doing it. Sure. Well, I've worked both PR and SEO side, um, uh, agency and in-house. And I think that's probably where my integration skills really matured because I learned what it meant to be integrated from a search perspective and from a PR perspective. Because a lot of the agencies I look at, they think they're being integrated and they are by their own definition, but they need to step over to the other side and look in and see how integrated they actually are. That's where I think the biggest gaps come. So when I was SEO side, I was really excited because it was like that was about six, seven years ago when I first started working SEO side and it was the best briefs ever. It's like build links, 
doesn't have to have anything to do with the client as long as it gets links, which from a PR perspective, you're like, you mean I don't have to get brand messaging in there? <laughs> sure. Awesome. Um, and then when I, um, after a little while, um, you know, obviously brand management became more and more prevalent just because we were getting higher um, higher links. We needed bigger links, better links. That mean that means that SEOs were then becoming brand managers. And at this point, I was watching where the algorithm looked like it was going to evolve to. And I was like, ah, I kind of feel like that I might be being a good integrated person is going to be a lot about being the best storyteller in the future. And I was like, SEOs are good at the technical, but I need to go in-house somewhere or to an agency that is the best at storytelling. And I met a gentleman at a networking event who is um, probably the best storyteller, one of the best I've ever met. His name's Peter Bowles. He runs an agency um, in London uh, called Dynamo PR. And I went to work with them uh, so that I could advance my storytelling skills. And so I was doing SEO, but from a PR perspective there. And that was really interesting too, because the brand management side of it was really a lot more prevalent. The messaging side was more prevalent. And so I kind of got to mature both sides of my skill set. Um, and I worked across a lot of clients. It was kind of exciting. You know, a lot of agencies are very focused, but uh, pretty much my specialism was making people money online. So e-commerce could be anything from pet insurance all the way through to HTC gold phones. Um, so I got to work on a whole load of different stuff. And when you're working across such a breadth of industries, you have to find certain consistencies that you can rely on to be a truth amongst them because you won't always have contacts in that industry. You won't know it inside out. You won't have that natural intuition that you build if you're always PRing or doing SEO in tech or um, furniture, for example. And so I started to look a lot at how publications were working. How were they dealing with changes in Google? How were they dealing with changes in the uptake of mobile technology and their audiences? And that became the sort of, a, I guess, the centrifugal force that all my strategies revolved around. It's how can I serve the publishers who are in turn serving the consumers um, to a large degree? And that's pretty much where I've grown my career from. Okay, that's that's great. I think it's a really thorough kind of overlay of, of the perspective that you bring to the table here. I want to dive into this idea of storytelling a little bit because I am of the opinion, and, and look, truthfully, the way I do my work, I, I find that that's a, a gap for many professionals, that they might know the technical side of things. They might know the way the sales process moves and flows. They might even be the best product managers or marketers in the world. But the connectivity of the dramatic element of what we're doing sometimes is the toughest for people to, to grasp. I mean, would, would you agree with that? And, and why is why is it important? Why has the evolution of the algorithm required us to be better storytellers? So I think I'm going to try to break that into a few parts. So I think the first part is that you know, Google's up objective is to provide the best result for a query. Now, we've always been able to hack the algorithm because it was manually coded. So you're like, oh, it's ranking um, sites with the most links and the, uh, the best links highest. We can go and build links. Um, it's not easy, but we can go and do it. Uh, before that, it was just, you know, let's content farm or whatever it might be to dupe the algorithm. Whereas with the introduction of machine learning and AI, the algorithm is learning what is a true signal. It, in some ways, it actually knows us better than we know ourselves. So it will recognize if everyone's just clicking on a page and just clicking off, or if it's targeting an audience that's truly engaged, going to stay on the page and then click through and return time and time again. 
it will know if that subject matter resonates with the rest of the portfolio of their searches and their online and even mobile activity and offline behavior. Because it's important to remember that uh, a lot of um, our data is tracked offline as well. For example, if you go into a Westfield shopping center, part of the terms and conditions on their free Wi-Fi access is that they're allowed to track your offline behavior as well as your online. So when you add machine learning and AI to that data set, it's going to know if a search engine professional is dupes on into clicking on a page or linking to a page as a, a way of duping the algorithm. So in terms of evolution, it's just that we can't lie. <laughs> We're not going to be able to win sure. by lying, which is kind of cool because it means that we actually have to target real people with real strategies, which um, it isn't something that is unbeknown to marketeers at all. Um, it just means that that's got to be a far more focused perspective. Um, I think it'll take a little while for that part of the algorithm to hit globally. I think we'll see it, as you'd imagine, in the United States and places like the United Kingdom first. Um, with regards to storytelling, I think the biggest problem we have is the waning concentration span. So you know, we always used to joke about fish having short concentration spans. Well, I, I think you're going to find fish swimming around in bowls looking at humans making jokes about <laughs> our concentration spans now. Uh, and I, this is a, you see this a lot in publishing. I was actually speaking to um, an editor of a big tech publication and I was saying to him, tell me about the traffic that comes from different sites. And he said, well, you know, I've been playing a game with Reddit. Whenever we get an article on the front page of Reddit, we get all these hits to our site, but it bounces straight off. And I was like, oh, interesting. That must be terrible for, you know, in terms of bounce rate impacting uh, optimization, things like that. He's like, yeah, well, I've been trying to game it. So I've been working out what I need to do to get people to click on something else or to stay on the page. And these are rough stats that he was giving me. But he was saying most people only read a headline. Um, about 30% of people will read the top three paragraphs of an article, and even less, the whole of an article, which is kind of crazy. And these are people who are definitely into those article, uh, those sort of uh, subject matters. Mm. And um, so he was saying, what I started to do was, um, firstly, I moved all the social share buttons to the top because no one reads it to the bottom of an article um, based on those stats. So um, our shares went up the moment I put the social buttons at the top of the article. And then I've started auto-suggesting different articles, but much further up the page to see how many clicks I could get. Um, and he's like, and Reddit users, they just like to click as far as he was concerned. <laughs> so he was playing with them. Um, he said he needed the almost the most clickbaity titles to get people to just go on a click journey. And so the stories that he was telling were actually based on headlines. So it's read a headline, that bite leads you to another headline. So you're almost trying to feed someone a paragraph of information across three or four clicks. And that's when I was like, this is really interesting because if you look at the evolution of Facebook video, which is around 30 seconds, I mean, you've got publishers trying to get people to essentially read a paragraph with three, four clicks. Mm. We've now got brands trying to tell full product stories in 30 seconds or in a headline, which when you consider the rate at which technology is advancing, we, we can't explain a lot of the words in one sentence um, to, that describe some of the new products, uh, let alone um, in a 30 second video or um, you know, two clicks. It's just not gonna be, it's not easily done. And that's why I think we need to understand this notion of how do you take someone on a journey? How do you make them wanna click four times to tell them four bits of information or watch three 30 second videos over what period of time? 
And so in some ways, I kind of feel like we have to go way, way back to maybe tribal culture, where everything was verbal. How did you know, chief masters engage their audiences to want to sit down and listen to them? Well, firstly, that notion of sit down is kind of cool. You know, I grew up in South Africa and storytelling, I mean, a lot of African culture and history was passed on verbally. They didn't have written mm -hmm. language for a very long time. So it was about getting people to a place and then getting them to sit down, be in a certain mindset, and then they would tell the stories. And I think we can see similar aspects of this happening now, where we're starting to see offline events being the trigger for online activities. So you get people to go somewhere, to be physically present, to convey your story, and then you follow up with little bite-sized pieces thereafter. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this going forward. It's, it's just find it so fascinating, right? The, the whole idea of kind of nouns, it's almost as if instead of gaming the algorithm, you're trying to game people's uh, attention deficit, it seems to me almost, right? Um, to, to keep them in and draw them in. So I find that really fascinating. I wonder, you know, the question that I have in here for, um, you, you know, is there is there a break point? In other words, is there a tipping point where someone in our audience will actually dive one level further in other words that will read a longer form piece that will stay with us longer or are we ever are we you know are we doomed to this uh you know this 30 second communication or this five clicks to get our message across i mean is that our fate or do we get to a point where we actually can get our audience engaged enough that they'll spend some time with us i think we might start getting that, but I think we're going to get it in the real world. So most things work in cycles to some degree. And um, yes, uh, if you look at the, if you look at the precedent set by the introduction of television and its impact on the marketing world, I think the trajectory looks positive, and I say positive in terms of direction, not positive as in terms of its impact on people, um, that Yes, we are going to have shorter and shorter concentration spans, and the object objective will be to communicate through that medium, because that's what happened with television. Uh, we stopped reading uh, reading quite as much, and print became it had a role, but as um, online happened, print um, waned a little bit. And I've been looking a lot at what happened when television uh, essentially got introduced to, introduced to America and the world, and I think we're going to see the same here. That being said, we will come full circle. I think we're going to come back around to a desire to interact with people because we're getting more and more removed from other humans from, you know, we, we create these brand personalities, but they're not actually people. Let's be quite conscious of that. Sure. Right? There's a um, you know, virgin might have a uh, great spokesperson and representative and Richard, but virgin isn't Richard. And that's the closest you're going to get. So I think we're going to see an evolution in offline events where people want to spend time with other humans. And that's kind of interesting because we've gone through this um, phase where we used to be able to lie to Google, but it is a little bit harder to lie to people, especially in real life. Um, so, and I think that's kind of exciting. We might actually build communities that meet in, uh, in a real world scenario as opposed to communities that exist through a Facebook number. You know, it's interesting you should say that because one of the things that I've been doing recently is, and again, it's new to me, not necessarily new is not the right word, but I find there's certain Facebook groups that are kind of niche where there's a lot of activity. In other words, where they're very engaged, you get to know people there. And 
it's not like Facebook groups are anything new, but it's for some reason it seems that that there is the people are drawn to obviously similar you know things and they actually share that information, and I I, I believe that today, you know the social part of social media is just kind of like a, an adjective thrown on top, but is there a media catalyst that will help us do that? And again, not just as marketers, but as indeed professionals where. There'll be destinations that are easier for us to navigate, sift through the noise to actually land in a place where we're able to gain not just the type of information we want to hear, the way social media serves it up to us today, but information that's going to challenge our thought and who we, what we think and how we develop our skill sets, how we develop our social views and on and on. I mean, is that, is that too much of a utopian idea for the way media flows or do you see that it'll actually be a catalyst to, to do what you're suggesting here to pull communities more tightly together? So that's a really interesting one, because most of the social media studies show that we almost, without doubt, only click on stuff we agree with. So the idea that it might be um, a tool for uh, perspective change, uh, broadening your mind, is actually largely an illusion based on the stats that I can see. However, I think there are some really exciting opportunities for some smart marketeers and storytellers to get together with um, the impact uh, uh, industries such as you know NGOs and charities and say right how do let's look at the groups that we can see that are active now how do we link their interests to ours and bring them on a journey and essentially slowly reel them in to seeing our world so you know essentially how do you burst these sort of bubble filter bubbles that people have immersed themselves in because uh, the marketeers that become experts at bursting filter bubbles are unable to unleash an influence, a force uh, for their clients and their businesses that is uh, measurable. It's preemptive as well. You know, we can look at it and say, this bubble is X size and it's got X amount of activity. If we can burst it and channel it through to our business, we can make an estimate on uh, what value that will have. Whereas um, the problem we have with a lot of social media at the moment, I find it kind of interesting that social media tends to get more budget often than PR, SEO put together or content marketing even though the ROI metrics often tend to look quite weak. Um, and I think a lot of strategy or advanced strategy is going to be throttled by the preemptive metrics. If you can't turn around and say, I can guarantee you X and Y, you're going to struggle to get budget for it. And if businesses really want to advance and stay on top, they're going to have to get really comfortable with experimental budget and that not always working out. But that's going to be the only way to stay on top because we're not always going to be able to say, I guarantee you I can burst this bubble and it's going to create conversions. You might be able to burst the bubble, get a whole load of traffic, but those people take six months to convert. Or you find that you have to tell them 12 stories instead of three stories in order to get them to convert. You know, this is um, this idea of filter bubble bursting, um, especially within the social media sector, uh, to create influence, it, it's somewhat uncharted within this context and nobody likes to put money where there isn't a guaranteed ROI. So I think it's largely the people who succeed are going to have to have the right attitude and maybe even it'll be the people who get smart at hiding bits of budget so that they can do these experiments. <laughs> sure. Well, that begs the question, right? Because marketers on the whole, uh, they're under pressure, obviously, to show results and perform. And in the things you discuss, it requires a level of patience and a, and, and really a, a commitment to the longer term. So those things are kind of diametrically opposed to one another sometimes, right? So in that context, 
you know, we're always tempted to go after the revenue uh, impact, the immediate revenue impact, right? And then we'll play the number games that we've learned since the dawn of the internet age, whether it's impressions or whatever those conversion metrics might be, uh, of the types of impressions that are coming to the site. What, what is it, as far as a leader's concerned, like what is it that's going to, uh, to, to be the catalyst for us to be brave enough to say, and I like the idea of hiding budget, that's a good one, right? But, you know, ethically speaking, right, should leaders care about how they're going about it? In other words, can they trade off some of the longer-term investments in favor of not investing in some of the quick hits of, you know, CPMs or whatever the metric is they care about? So I think this operative word there is care. I think care is going to be, without wanting to sound like a raging hippie, but I think care is going to be a very interesting notion. Uh, Businesses that care for their employees and make their employees care for them will induce employees to hide bits of budgets for longer-term benefit. Investors that care about the short and the long-term ROI, and that means whether those investors are leaders or actual investors, um, they will structure these sort of strategies. That will be the most important thing we have over time. But yes, it's very hard to convince people to do things in the long term. um, In fact, it's actually, it's really interesting. You're probably more likely to be able to do this in countries where they don't, uh, their languages don't separate present from future. So there's a great TED talk. I'll find it and send the link to you um, that looks at the percentage of GDP saved in countries where their language doesn't separate um, present from future. And it's a lot higher. So and I found, interestingly, that from my client experience, clients um, who don't have English as a first language are often a little bit more inclined to do both short and long term investments. But they don't have to be completely separated at all. There are ways to manage a strategy with both short-term and long-term impact. And integration is key to that. And if your employees will work together, if you're a small business and you can get all your employees to work together and you look at all your different objectives, short and long-term, it's not hard to build a strategy that has both um, immediate and long-term impact. But getting people to work together is really, really challenging. And I think this is where small businesses are going to have such a big advantage over the large brands in days to come. And that's where that idea of care comes. You, you find it harder to make people working for huge brands really care in yeah. the same way that you do when you're sat right next to your boss and you get to see his kids because they come into the office and you all kind of feel like a family. That's when you really put your head into gear and say, right, I'm not going to go through the motions. I'm going to be innovative today. I find that really fascinating, right? Because that in and of itself is a leadership dilemma, right? In other words, how do I choose to lead this organization, whether it's you know thousands of people across multiple geographies or whether it's 25 people in my corner office down the street, right? Um, what, what again, this... I don't think there's any right answer to this, but I'm curious to see the folks that you've worked with, have you seen any characteristic or leadership trait that suggests hey, this style, this especially in English-speaking countries, right, because that's who my audience mm-hmm. is mostly, and I think there are challenges you just laid out here more differently uh, by the nature of our business culture. Is there any particular trait that you see that would suggest that, yes, this type of leader is going to have a greater uh, success rate at pulling the organization together to work both the short and the long-term strategies in this perspective? I think the leaders that throttle their growth to hire the right people 
and don't get seduced by growth um, in the medium term are the ones that tend to succeed. And we see this a lot with startups. People join startups partly because it's, you know, you're getting into the working world. Um, so you're, you know, dare I say, when I graduated, I was like, any job, any job will do. <laughs> um, but um, also when you leave university, you tend to be fairly aware of what interests you because you've spent three years nurturing passions. And startups allow for that. You know, they nurture passions and they nurture people. Um, so in that sense, uh, I think you find everyone working together towards a common goal, something they actually believe in, um, as opposed to just getting a check to pay the bills so that they can get out of there and live life. Uh, you know, we're going to work a lot longer than our parents did and certainly that our grandparents did. So work needs to have a different context. It can't just feel like we go in and we go out. You know, most of us do not work nine till five and we do not just turn off the moment our foot leaves that door. So the leaders that get people who really believe in the goal, who want to make something happen, who want to make something real, and then they nurture those people and really look after them, and also take a moment to check their own biases whilst doing that. Those are the ones that succeed. Because I've seen a lot of really awesome businesses that took a lot of time hiring the right people in the beginning and then decided, right, time to scale. Because they'd, they'd grown a business, they'd made it sustainable. And so their personal challenge then in their mind was scale and scale probably a little bit faster than what was sensible. And the moment you break culture, it's very hard to rebuild it. Do you think purpose has a lot to do with, with being able to do that? In other words, you read so much about the generational divides and what motivates different generations, but I actually think there's too much you know, digital ink given to that and not enough given to this notion of, hey, in our connected world, we seek to be more connected to the impact of what we're doing. Now, I'm curious as to what you think about that. Do you think that clearly articulating, connecting the passion of those that work with us and for us to the purpose of what we're out to do as an organization? I mean, is there is there value in doing that? Should we make investments there? I think there's definitely value in doing that, but also looking at everyone's individual purpose. Um, so a lot of what I do when I go into organizations, especially if um, uh, some of the organizations I go into have been doing black hat SEO, my job is to work out how do we get them doing not just white hat SEO, but brilliant white hat SEO as fast as possible um, without dropping in any results um, for clients and performance metrics. And a lot of that is looking at the staff and essentially re-interviewing them and saying, what do you really want to do? What's your purpose? Why? What makes you want to get up in the morning? Um, I had a, a company I was in the other week and I realized that one of the staff members loves photography. So you've got someone that's been negotiating links and doing fairly low-level link building, but it's actually a great photographer well, media love unique images. So I was like, right, we've got these eight projects. Go take your camera, leave your laptop, come back with some unique images, and um, we'll send them out to picture desks. And part of um, the licensing of the images is that they're free to use them as long as they reference the source, i.e. link back to the client. Well, sure. that girl's super motivated. So mm -hmm. that was partly her purpose combining with the business purpose. And I, I think you know, our individual purposes change throughout the course of our life. Do you meet someone you fall head over heels in love with? Or do you get itchy feet and want to travel the world? Because that's what your best friend's just done. And so uh, trying to align your staff with just the business goal seems somewhat irrational over a, a long-term period. Huh. Sure. No, I like that. I like that example too, right? The idea of, hey, because I always say to my clients that if you have, look, if you have 100 people on staff, there's 
there's at least two to three percent of them that can contribute to the way you're developing content in some creative way that you haven't even tapped into. So I like that because it kind of reinforces something that I, you know, kind of believe. Now I've seen you mention video before, Alexi. I know you've used video. It seems to be evolving so fast, our use of video, because all the platforms are giving you live streaming options and making it so easy to share video in all, all formats. What do you think about that? Should we should we be capitalizing on video quickly, or should we be a little bit more cautious about how we're developing our video strategy and, and what we put forward out to the public sphere? So I have a personal opinion. It's not how I execute myself with all my clients, because I have to look at their personal views. I think fail fast. Go out there and do some stuff. Don't be completely stupid, but the quicker you do stuff, the quicker you learn about your audience because every audience is unique. Every business is unique. Every website is, right? Um, so I would say get up and do stuff. Do it on your phone. You can use you know, an iPhone uh, to film fairly good content that can be good enough for television, let alone online. Um, some businesses want to be more cautious. And that's completely understandable because if you look at um, uh, the FTSE 100, um, the majority of those businesses, um, equity is actually in the brand value, not any of their assets. So the requirement to protect the brand is understandable. In that sense, they would probably be a little bit more apprehensive to dive head first into it. However, if we go back to looking at publishers, I know some publishers that are looking at phasing out written content altogether in favor of video. So if publishers are considering that, then it's certainly something that brands should be considering. Well, I haven't even thought about it that way, but I think that's a good that's a good uh, takeaway from anybody that might be listening to you chat about this. So, Lexi, I know you've got some pretty compelling research going on, and we, we chatted about it about a month ago before uh, we got on the air today. So, uh, you know, it's a little self-indulgent because I'm so fascinated by what you're doing, but I want you to share it with the audience because, to me, you're looking at a lot of where this – is evolving and the impact that artificial intelligence is going to have on our everyday. And it might not be here today, but it's certainly headed in that direction. So I kind of think, and especially in the context of leadership, if that we're going to be good moral stewards of our own careers and, and our work, and or if we're leading a company that we should care about these things. So in that context, can you share with my audience a little bit about what you're currently researching? Yeah. So, I mean, I have a couple of projects on the go. Uh, one of the ones I'm looking at is um, language adoption. So I'm looking at how quickly new words get integrated into the English language primarily. So and how that is speeding up over time. Um, because my concern is that the greatest advancement to technology is not going to be a technical one. It's going to be a human one. So, for example, if I say to you, I've got an amazing new app you know what an app is. So you have some idea of what I'm talking about. But if I, if you didn't know what an app was, then it would mean nothing to you. And therefore, when I look at some of the great technology, especially in the medical space that is coming out, every sentence has three or four unknown words. And so what I'm looking at is how quickly can I integrate new words through smart PR and content marketing into language and get it used on media sites, get it used in socially, um, so that then I can start to say, I've got a new app that uses machine learning and um, light therapy to X, and humans will understand it, because I know that I have to be able to sell these products, or at least promote them, um, using uh, one sentence. 
Uh, this research also has applications uh, in research. So last year I worked on an awesome conference called CHI. It's uh, the Future of Human Interface Technology. It's basically, if you're a tech geek, it is heaven. Um, and I went uh, and I had 90 research papers of some of the most advanced technology in the world from places like MIT, Google Research Labs, uh, Microsoft Research, and I had to pick just a few of these to promote in order to promote the conference. And so what I initially did was I searched all the papers for um, key terms and correlated them with the key terms that uh, were coming out of the coverage of the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas. And that, that's how I made the decision about what uh, papers to promote. But what I noticed was that when I spoke to the researchers who didn't get their papers promoted, they said, you know, if we don't get PR for our work, we don't get funding. And so that means that investors are only funding things that are in fact cool and sexy. So if we can't make research cool and sexy, some very valuable research is gonna go underfunded. And that means we may not get cures to unsexy illnesses, or um, we may not get solutions to problems that aren't fun or exciting. And so the understanding how to integrate new language to help some of this research become trendier and how to make new language trend is becoming significantly more important. So I, that's like, I'm glad you went to that level of detail, right? Because I do, this is exactly the kind of thing that I think my audience strives to sort out, right? Because that there's a lot packed into what you just shared here, but what I find most interesting is that, listen, the language we use and the way we're able to understand how those things are flowing through what we talk and read about and what we view actually matters. In other words, I should care about that, but look, let's be honest, it's such a, we have so many things to care and feed for that sometimes it's daunting. We don't know where to begin or start or, or even tap into that sort of, um, evaluation of where our market's moving or the things that we're talking about and how to connect them to something that might be a little bit more, have a little bit more sizzle than what we've got going on. So if that's the case, if I'm a leader sitting in my car listening to you chat and I'm excited by your your thought and your direction and what you do, but then I look at my business and I have no idea where I ought to start. Like what is the one takeaway? If you had to say to that guy or gal that's driving home from work, listening to this right now, what's the one thing they should take away from all this and maybe change or do differently? So I would say make space. Um, so I think it was Einstein that said that anything you observe will change. Um, if you create space to observe, you will create change. And often, even if it's just a, okay, one Friday a month, I'm going to choose to buy some beers and some fruit juices for the office and I'm just going to speak to my team about what they think we should do to be more advanced and protect our future. And if you just commit to doing that once a month, then you will make change. Uh, it's very hard to make any change without the space or the time to do so. So my uh, first recommendation would be if you identify that there's value in some of the things that I've said, give yourself some time to work out how you personally put that into action because as I said every business is unique every set of t um, teams are unique but often it's the people right on the ground that have the best insights and often they don't get the chance to really voice them and sometimes they, very small changes can have a huge impact and they can be made really easily like when I go into um, agencies or um, in-house especially and I just 
sit down with a PR team and I teach them some very basic SEO and then show them some examples of how they can apply it to their work without it remotely impacting their work, suddenly you've got a team that wasn't building links, suddenly building some of the best links the company's ever had with zero effort. That's a very small change that had a huge impact. And often, if you ask your staff, you'll find a bunch of those and you just create a list of them and you start going through it. Because often we think we need to do big things to make big change, but I think that largely is untrue. Good, I like that. That's that's great advice. I think it makes the barrier to entry here a little bit less daunting for people. So listen, Lexi, I want to you know be mindful of your time, but before we wrap up here, just help my audience find out uh, how they can find out more about you and your work and what you do. Where, where should they head? Uh, most of the time I'm pretty active on Twitter, so if anyone wants to contact me, send me a tweet or you can drop me an email at leximills.uk at gmail.com and I'm happy to have a chat. Um, I travel quite a lot, so I'm between the uh, Europe and the USA, so just uh, let me know your time zone and we can make a time uh, that's appropriate to catch up. Very good. Thank you for that, Lexi. And once again, we've been speaking with Lexi Mills. She's the Managing Director at Marquee Communications and Consulting. And I think you could tell by our conversation, incredibly bright and forward thinking in the area of how we communicate, what's important to us, and how to do it in a moral and ethical way. So Lexi, thank you so much for taking time out to be with me today on Leading Matters. It's a pleasure. Have a lovely afternoon.